You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 190 by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures entitled Past and Future Impulses in Societal Events, translated by Paul King. This is Lecture 8, given in Dornach on the 6th of April, 1919. When we contemplate such thoughts as those we discussed yesterday, we do so while bearing in mind the gravity of our time, which unfortunately, as we know, is not generally felt by our contemporaries, and indeed not even by a moderately large number of them. We will only be able to say that this gravity of our time is felt when a larger number of people sense that a path leading to spiritual knowledge, in a way appropriate for our times, is absolutely necessary, and that this path into spiritual knowledge is to a certain degree the only means of healing the harms and sicknesses of our time. A matter such as this must raise the question in us, quote, what is the root cause of the harm of our time? Wherein lies the actual cause of the sickness of our time? Close quote. And even though in many people today there is the tendency to look for our time's harms and sicknesses elsewhere than in the human being himself, it is nevertheless of boundless importance to see that looking for these harms in the human being himself is the only way that can lead anywhere. When we survey our present time, we see how there are weather signs lighting up for us from Eastern Europe. Even today we cannot yet say that European humanity has much inclination to pay any attention to these weather signs. The way things are regarded is such that people find it too uncomfortable to come to real conclusions about the great matters confronting humanity. Again and again in such matters the thought can be helpful that points to what is being omitted, because if we see to some extent what is being omitted, we will perhaps be prevented from making similar omissions in the future. For a long time now, there have been weather signs coming from the east of Europe, about which it has often been said here that despite what might be happening now, it is there that the seeds of the sixth post-Atlantean culture lie. The signs were perhaps not written in such bloody letters as in recent times, but they would have been sufficient to be heard, to be given some attention. There are many things here that we have been mentioning for years. Today, in the first part of our discussion, I should like to mention some aspects that have already been spoken about here from one angle or another. If we look at what has been living in Eastern Europe for a long time now, we could summarize it in a question that is exceptionally characteristic for our present time, the question, what truly is the human being? We can say that this question, what truly is the human being, what does the human being represent in the universe, has been taken most seriously in the modern era by the most diverse strata of the East European population. 
The West has been engaged in too much else to consider the question of what the human being truly is. Certainly the question has been much discussed theoretically, but such theoretical discussion, when not permeated by real spiritual life, is not of much use. I would like to mention a few things that point to the question posed with such longing in the East, what truly is the human being? It has been possible to hear significant statements regarding this precisely from the East. I have already drawn attention to such statements. Among those involved in recent times in the emergence of ideas concerning the social question was one of the most gifted of people, Bakunin, who was later an opponent of Marx. In contrast to Marx, who attacked social life and the social movement from a decidedly Western European perspective, Bakunin approached the social movement from the perspective of East European ideas and impulses. In all that Bakunin says, there glimmers something of a philosophy of life, of a deeper grasp and perception of life. And thus from Bakunin comes a very significant statement, a statement that seeks to shed light on the question, what truly is the human being? By contrasting the idea of the human being with the idea of God. You see, this statement of Bakunin's, which I am about to discuss, arose in Bakunin from his perception of modern life. His perception was that deep in human nature there lies the impulse for freedom, the impulse of the free human being. What more do we want in life than to be a free individual? This is how we could express the impulse and longing of a person who thinks in a similar way to Bakunin. For such a person, in contrast to this impulse and longing of the human being's inner nature, there stands another perception, which comes to them by looking at modern life, where the individual, if they belong to the middle classes, is harnessed to an enormous quantity of prejudices by the state and other sources. And if they belong to the working classes, to industrialism and capitalism, For one who looks at life as freely and independently as Bakunin, people in modern life are in a kind of slavery. Freedom has to be conceived very fundamentally, as I have tried to do in my book titled The Philosophy of Freedom. When this freedom is not conceived so fundamentally, we are always tossed about on the one hand by the longing for freedom, on the other hand by our perception of modern life which actualizes anything but freedom. And so, Bakunin looks up formally to what millennia have told us, to humanity's religious sensibilities of the divine, and contrasts this with modern life. Quote, God exists, therefore man is free. Close quote. Bakunin imagines that if God exists, the human being cannot be anything other than free. Quote, man is a slave, therefore there is no God. I am convinced, close quote. Bakunin continues, continue quote, that no one can get away from this circular argument. And now let us choose, close quote. This is a statement that actually ought to make a more significant impact on people than many a world event, which, because of being externally present, is able to make an impression on people's sensations. 
if only we could bring people to the point of feeling something about such a statement in which a modern person admits that they cannot get beyond this dilemma. On the one hand, I have to say that God exists and therefore man is free. On the other hand, I have to say, but man is a slave, therefore there is no God. We have to choose between the eternal longing in the human heart for freedom and the invincible experience of modern life that man is a slave. The one, human nature itself, leads to proof of God. Modern life leads to atheism, and one cannot decide between them. So Bakunin says, through logical judgment, deciding between them can only be a matter of choice. As a modern individual, one can choose one way or the other, because fundamentally, Nothing compels us to do anything other than choose. And it is possible to say that most people today do not choose at all, but thoughtlessly vegetate away mentally and emotionally in this dilemma, in this circular situation. There are other words coming from the East, spoken by one of the heroes in a work by Gorky, quote, I want to write a short book. I will call it titled Prayer for the Dying. There are such prayers that one says over the dying, and this society, which has the curse of inner weakness weighing on it, will, before its demise, reach for my book as though for musk. You see, these are words which, from a certain point of view, can be called out to modern humanity. But modern humanity only looks for all kinds of sedatives, psychological and mental tranquilizers, so as not to have to take such words seriously enough. And a curious school of philosophy, let's call it such, has arisen in the East, which has drawn a kind of consequence for life from modern existence, the sect of the barefoot philosophers, as they are often called. A barefooter in one of Gorky's works says the following, There is something wrong in me. Consequently, I have not come into the world the way a person should. I'm on a special path. And not only me, there are many of us. We have to be strange and don't fit into any order. Whom do we see as guilty? For us, we ourselves and life are guilty. This was said in the East, not by just one or two individuals, but by many. And when, after some time, external circumstances become such that it will be possible to write the history of these recent years of confusion in Europe, which today is not yet possible, it will be seen how much involvement such a worldview has in the whole destiny of our time, but also, on the other hand, how such a worldview is based on what I described yesterday as the confusion, the superficiality, the thoughtlessness of our age. And one has to ask oneself again and again, how specifically and in detail does what I said yesterday come to expression? Namely, that our age, particularly since the beginning of the 18th century, has been passing as though through a tidal wave of confusion, as though through a wave creating a knotted tangle of thoughts that throws people into confusion. You see, Nothing can serve to shed light on this question except what can be found only on the basis of a genuine spiritual science. 
What is it that spreads most readily among certain sorts of people today? Thoughts, so-called thoughts. They are mostly thoughts, however, that come to expression in words, ideas printed on paper that can be rapidly distributed today, the kind of thoughts, namely, that people are most proud of, about sense-perceptible, material life as studied by science and widely popularized. A comparison ought to be made sometime of the enormous difference between the soul life of people today and that of people around the 15th and 16th centuries. At that time people communicated their thoughts verbally. They did not read printed papers every morning with the thoughts that they then carry around with them the whole day, mostly without realizing it. How much of an impression does a Sunday sermon make on someone who, based on very different kinds of thoughts, had previously just read their newspaper? This spreads a certain general education, but in our age this general education is without any real spiritual content, for real spiritual content can only come from a spiritual culture. Now, thoughts in the way they are spread in the modern era have no real human value at all if they cannot be related to the supersensory life. All thoughts, this is speaking rather radically, but it is correct, which cannot be connected to the supersensory life are actually harmful to people. And herein lies one of the chief diseases of our time, namely that from all kinds of underground origins, particularly through the popularizing of scientific ideas, thoughts are spread that cannot be related by people to the supersensory life and are therefore harmful. Thoughts should really always be related to supersensory life. They have a destructive, annihilating effect on human life if they are not related to what is supersensory. For without the relationship of thoughts produced in human beings to what is supersensory, the question, quote, what truly is the human being, close quote, cannot be answered. Because the supersensory is quite simply a part of people's being, there is always something barren, something unsatisfying in their depths, when they are unable to relate thoughts, which after all arise in them in a supersensory way, to the supersensory element. Now this longing for an answer to the question in the human soul will never be extinguished. The longing for the answer to the question, what truly is the human being? This longing cannot be extinguished. It can be sedated. People can themselves remove the consciousness of it so that their consciousness doesn't stretch as far as asking what truly is the human being. Then this question what truly is the human being, will churn away in all kinds of nervous and other disorders. But the question as to what the human being truly is cannot be extinguished from the human soul. Now the 19th century in particular, in its entire cultural makeup, was completely unsuited to answering this question in a way that could satisfy the human being. Great impulses of an age always express themselves insignificant symptoms. One such symptom of significance for the entire thought life of modern times is the existence of Friedrich Nietzsche. It is regrettable 
that the ranks of the narrow-minded and Philistine in modern times have made themselves out to be followers of Nietzsche, and that attention is not paid, or paid only by a few, to the actual phenomenon of Nietzsche. I have always said about this, that the modern individual is represented by Nietzsche, who suffered psychologically the most, and was destroyed by the culture of the last third of the nineteenth century. I have often said that this nineteenth-century culture was produced by others. One was Schopenhauer. He produced a certain portion of the culture of the nineteenth century. Nietzsche suffered as a follower of Schopenhauer. Then there was Richard Wagner, who also produced a portion of nineteenth-century culture. Nietzsche suffered as a follower of Wagner. Then there was the renewed Voltairism, the free thought of the last third of the nineteenth century. Heckel, Büchner, Feuerbach, and others followed this free thinking of the last third of the nineteenth century. Nietzsche suffered from this. What was expressed throughout the new culture of the last third of the nineteenth century was that this culture must lead itself ad absurdum. Art took on values which could only be understood by comprehending them and their self-dissolution. Science came closer and closer to preaching its own nullity as the highest wisdom in face of the supersensory. Nietzsche suffered from this. He suffered from Schopenhauer, Richard Wagner, from the reawakened Voltairism of the last third of the nineteenth century. And through this suffering developed two stupendous, overwhelming but despair-arousing ideas. The idea of the Übermensch, superman or overman, and the idea of eternal recurrence, Wiederkunft des Gleichen. Why the idea of an Übermensch? Because there was no possibility of answering the question, what truly is the human being? In someone who suffered as much as Nietzsche did, this caused a retreat from the human being, a fleeing toward something that overcame the human being. The Übermensch for Nietzsche is simply the great potent tranquilizer, the sedative for the inability of nineteenth-century culture to reach a proper idea of the human being. And eternal recurrence? One just has to picture the full implication of this idea for Nietzsche. Try to imagine that we have already all sat here together, just as we are sitting now, countless times before, and will do so countless times again. Each of us has countless times gone through what we are going through at this time, and will do so countless times again. So there is no evolution that allows the emergence of an idea of ascent and progress, and hence the idea of the Übermensch, because one is unable to come to a conception of the human being, because one cannot think of real progress in the development of either humanity or the cosmos, eternal recurrence of the same. Nietzsche realized what this implies. Others who perhaps laugh at the implication do not come to the same realization due to thoughtlessness. For one must either come to this conclusion or turn to spiritual science which doesn't speak about an Übermensch, but speaks about what has already evolved through the Saturn, Sun and Moon periods, is now passing through its Earth evolution, and will evolve through further cosmic metamorphoses. 
It doesn't speak of the recurrence of the same, but is able to speak of real progress. See my title, Occult Science. But where is the inclination nowadays to look at these things in their full gravity? What is infinitely more important for most people than this world-encompassing matter? In all such situations, we have to ask what we are really dealing with here. We do not come easily today to the depths of what we are dealing with. I want today to touch on a specific perspective. When we try to look at the experiences of those who have just, or fairly recently, passed through the portal of death, who are therefore at the beginning of the life we lead between death and a new birth, we notice something very curious. I admit quite frankly, my dear friends, that the observation I am talking about was something I found decidedly inexplicable for a long time, something one finds one's way into only gradually. The fact was this, that a large number of people who at the present time pass through the portal of death are extremely surprised by the unknown things they encounter. I have spoken to you previously about what the dead experience after crossing the portal of death. Mixed in with everything that is easier to comprehend, easier to get to grips with and speak about, there is a large element of something that can only be described by saying that it is surprising to the dead that such a thing exists. That's on the one hand. A consciousness lives in them that they would never have thought experiences of this kind would come before their souls. On the other hand, with people who die when they are older, with those who die young, it is less the case. It is evident that this thing that comes before the soul with a certain unknown quality, and yet clearly, has something to do with the individual themselves, that it actually somehow originates from the person who has passed through the portal of death. So it is something unknown that the one who has died meets, yet is at the same time something that they clearly know stems from themselves, particularly as mentioned, if they are one of those who died in older age. When one notices this fact, one finds it decidedly hard to find an explanation for it. An explanation is only found when one takes very seriously something else that we have to consider in connection with this, namely the fact that people today who find themselves placed in the present-day circumstances of life experience a great many things of which they are either completely unaware or about which they create all sorts of illusions for themselves. There is a very broad range of experiences one can regard as subconscious experiences which approach us in the same way as what we experience consciously, but which either go entirely unnoticed while they are happening or are given a completely erroneous interpretation. This is a general characteristic of contemporary people, that they are inclined to give a distorted interpretation of what they themselves experience. They are disinclined to hold themselves to account in accordance with truth. They like to give what is connected with their way of thinking about the world a coloring in one direction or another. One only needs to examine oneself in this respect and ask how often one actually admits to being wrong about something. In most cases, 
where we ought to admit we were wrong, we put a different complexion on things, which sedates us into overlooking what we should actually say, namely that we were wrong about the matter. But this is only one of the phenomena which even externally can show people that they experience a great deal unconsciously today, about which in their consciousness they create illusions. If one dies after becoming fairly old, one then has in oneself a large number of such subconscious experiences, and it is these subconscious experiences that the individual meets after death as though transformed into something existential. Only once one is able to discover this connection between what was experienced unconsciously and the surprising element that the deceased experience after passing through the portal of death is one able to make something of this phenomenon. Only then is one able to comprehend why so many people who are not at all inclined to consider how they experience things but just let them lie in their subconscious are surprised when they actually meet this whole subconscious matter after passing through the portal of death. They are surprised, despite having experienced these things, and they have to sense at the same time that they themselves have a great deal to do with what they now perceive. It is really a part of their own life, a part of their own life that was either not noticed at all or only very indistinctly. It is a necessary but difficult task today for spiritual science to evaluate such things in the right way. But indicating this fact is of fundamental importance for our time. For only if we proceed from this basis can we reach an entirely rational answer to the question, why is finding an answer to the question, what truly is the human being, so extraordinarily difficult for modern humanity? When we look at human life in its inner development as a whole, we find we can break it down into three parts. The first comprises what we feel to be our gifts, our talents, our abilities. The second part comprises everything we develop in interaction with our fellow human beings, through the interplay of our consciousness with the consciousness of other people. And the third area comprises our experience. Our present age is extremely one-sided in how it relates to these three parts of human nature and actually only pays heed to the middle part. There is certainly a lot of complaint from certain quarters about how talented people are underestimated, but it is mainly the talented people themselves who do the complaining. The practice of dedicatedly cultivating talents is falling more and more into abeyance, but at the same time the value of human experience is also being abandoned. People today are no longer aware, I have often discussed this, that we don't just get older, but as we grow old we gather experience, that as we grow old we grow wiser and more prudent. This feeling for human development is also being lost. People today, once they have reached a certain age, want to be all equally wise want to have an equal say in everything, and, in the view of many, people's talents should not in interfere in this equal say, nor the experience they have gained in life. 
Fundamentally speaking, this is what our whole democratic worldview is based on, which will always tend to dig its own grave by saying that once a person has reached a certain age, they can make decisions in association with others about God, the world, and all and sundry. But what the individual develops in association with others, in the interaction of consciousness with consciousness, only belongs to one area of societal life, to the life of the state. To be sure, the state has become an idol precisely because we only accept what pulses between people in the way just mentioned. People do not want to regard the two other areas as warranting their own societal organizations, because this would mean the existence of intellectual organizations for the special cultivation of individual abilities. And what we call experience would come to expression entirely through inner forces in our economic structures. In the daily economy of our lives, we actually become more astute, whereby with daily economy, I don't just mean milking cows and cooking cabbage, but economy in its broadest sense. Thought is also part of the economy, to the extent that intellectual work has a certain commercial value, which indeed it must have, or else one could never make a living from mental work. It naturally has value in other areas too, but it also has a commercial value. It is precisely from this economic activity to which the production of intellectual value belongs, insofar as it has a commercial value, that experience arises. Now, outside the field of spiritual science, people today have no idea how to distinguish between these three areas of human nature. Our usual talents, by which we are gifted in one intellectual area or another, or through which we are skilled in one thing or another, for physical skills also belong to the category of individual talents, all these things, for people as they are today, do not actually belong entirely to our individual human nature. Basically, as paradoxical as it sounds, the more of a genius a person is today, the less they are an individual person. For our individual abilities, our talents, are generated before our birth or conception by a process of interaction between the cosmos and the forces of heredity through many generations. I have presented how this works once before. Our talents of genius and our individual abilities in general are all dependent on our head. No matter what a person's particular talents might be, even if they appear to be connected with special muscular development, these particular talents nevertheless originate in the head, even to the extent that they are expressed in a person's body build and the like. In many respects, One's individual abilities depend on whether one is a giant who can snap tree trunks or a little pipsqueak. This all has its origin in the head. The individual abilities a person is born with all originate from the head. The effect one person has on another stems from our interactions in life between birth and death, like language and all the social elements in human life. But when it comes to our experiences we are entering a far more complex chapter than most people today imagine. Because people today seldom become experienced individuals due to not opening themselves to receive the experience. 
Most people today even have a certain embarrassment when it comes to being experienced. When they have to admit that they see things differently now from how they saw them ten years ago, they feel ashamed, although they should not feel ashamed that over ten years they have grown more astute, but nevertheless they feel ashamed. Using life to become wiser is not an ideal for modern people. For the most part, people today squander their lives when it comes to becoming experienced. But the individual element in us comes to expression in becoming experienced. You might be a genius at working with capital, but what you produce through your genius with capital will only be influenced in a very small way by what you have undergone in previous incarnations. These previous incarnations are, to a high degree, mostly not guilty when it comes to being a genius, for genius is something that is brought about by an interaction between the cosmos and the forces of heredity through many generations. Geniuses are given to all humanity and are certainly not dropped from heaven so that they can please themselves. But what we gain by growing more prudent year by year and into our old age is something people are especially embarrassed about today. The fact that from year to year we grow more prudent, that we receive the experiences of life in order to become wiser, is connected with our incarnations. You see, if we look at a personality such as Goethe's, we come to extremely curious and significant findings. We can speak of Goethe's genius. This Goethean genius was already evident in his youth. But the abilities that were evident in his youth had what we might perhaps call the value of something fallen from heaven. But as Goethe became an old man, became more and more mature and never ceased to mature, so there gradually took shape and evolved what he had brought with him from previous incarnations. But people hate this even today. Goethe himself complained that what he considered he had not earned, namely the works of his youth, were particularly valued by people, whereas what he had attained through his life experience was rejected. I have often cited a poem by him with regard to the first part of Faust. The second part was not yet in view. This is a literal translation. Quote, People praise Faust and other things that blustered in my writings for their benefit. The old nonsense pleases them greatly. The rabble think they aren't one anymore. Close quote. But this has continued far into our days. How the genuine and very clever, gifted Swavian Fisher, the so-called V. Fisher, has ranted about the second part of Goethe's Faust, parodied it, called it a cobbled-together botched job of Goethe's old age, because our time has very little feeling for the process of maturing, for gaining experience. But this ties in with the fact that modern life contributes nothing to answering the question, what truly is the human being? For the answer to what truly is the human being as human being can actually only come from life experience. But this life experience cannot be gathered in any way that excludes the spiritual. As individual life proceeds, we must gradually develop the feeling where we say to ourselves, 
You don't learn only from the external course of things, but you also learn from what emerges from the underground regions of things. At the same time, all these things are such that, from a certain higher perspective, they make it inevitable for the question to arise, how do we separate the intellectual domain from the state? If the sphere of thought were to remain tied to state structures, this sphere of thought would not be able to develop in the way that is necessary for people to have real life experience. The state would have increasingly to flatten out the life of thought, because the state would not be able to engage in the subtle intimacies of intellectual life that in turn lead to real experience. The state would only be able to involve itself in an intellectual life that was entirely democratic, because democracy belongs to the state. In its own depths, however, the life of thought can never operate entirely democratically. You can't go down into the depths of thought, nor into the depths of human knowledge, if you want to stay with democracy. But in the state, everything has to be democratic. In the state, judgments should only be made on matters where any individual can judge any other individual. A genuine knowledge of the human being could never arise in this way. It must be pushed away into a field entirely of its own, where it can function as a life of thought in itself. People today do not really meet each other, and this will continue until they see each other in spirit. This was not necessary in ancient times, because people then were not as complicated as they are today. As I have explained from a different perspective, the complexity in human nature today arises particularly from the fact that people, humanity as a whole, only grows to be 27 years old, meaning that by itself it only develops up to its 27th year. What happens subsequently does not develop of itself as in ancient times, but its development has to be sought. Thus, the situation today is that the young person undergoes a development up to their 27th year, during which the elements of humanity come flying to them. The person can expect this up to the 27th year of life. Then the 27th year arrives and life by itself no longer bestows anything. And in response, the person does nothing. So from this point onward, life starts to become hollow, empty, barren, if the person doesn't exert themselves at the present time to take up the spiritual life, which, as I have said, is pouring like a wave over humanity. This crisis, which actually occurs in every human life today around the 27th year, and lasts until about the thirty-fifth year, comes to expression in characteristic phenomena. Everything that lives in human nature in general expresses itself particularly radically, particularly strongly, in individual phenomena. Thus, not so long ago, there was an individual regarded as a very leading figure, although what he led was not very much, who at a certain moment was faced with an important decision. But at the same time, as this decision, something else revealed itself in this individual. This individual had had an incarnation in the ninth century of the Christian era, 
and had been a kind of black magician in a southern region of Europe. This worked into this individual's present incarnation in such a way that when this decision arose, the decisive event, this individual actually died, meaning that the body was deserted by the soul that had reincarnated into it, but the individual continued to live externally, still existed. Just think what opportunities there are for all kinds of aramanic spirits and individualities to continue living in such a deceased person. This is one of many such instances that are produced in manifold ways by the complexity of modern life. Such things play into what are human actions today and also into what are human destinies. Without having at least a feeling for such incisive things as the case I have just cited, one cannot reach a proper judgment of events. I have often stressed, and there are individuals here to whom I have often stressed this, that it is not possible to judge the history leading up to this world catastrophe in the way history was previously judged, because windows were opened everywhere for aramonic beings that then came flying in and because spiritual causes of the strangest and most dubious nature played into the events of July 1914, it will not be possible to talk about what led historically to this world war catastrophe without the aid of the spiritual factors. But just think how vital it is today to really take things seriously. Take what I just mentioned as a primary phenomenon. Up to the seventh year of age, the human being develops the physical body, up to around the fourteenth year, the etheric body, up to the twenty-first year, the astral body, up to the twenty-eighth year, the sentient soul. And here it is the twenty-seventh year that is particularly important today. Then, up to the thirty-fifth year, the intellectual soul is at work. Then the consciousness soul. It is in the intellectual soul, as you can read in my title Theosophy, that the I emerges. But in terms of what is given by human nature, the human being develops only up to the twenty-seventh year. Human beings develop so as to expect the emergence of the I in the intellectual soul. But this doesn't happen on its own, because development from the twenty-eighth to the thirty-fifth year no longer takes place by itself. This is the immense question confronting people today. They live on beyond their twenty-seventh year. They have contributed nothing to the development that gives the real feeling of I, capital, and therefore the feeling of humanity, knowledge of the human being. What does this lead to? To the question, what really is the human being? And the answer people come to is away from the human being to the Übermensch, which only gives us a lyric content, or such things as, quote, there is something wrong in me. Consequently, I have not come into the world the way a person should. I am on a special path. And not only me, there are many of us. We have to be peculiar and don't fit into any order. Whom do we see as guilty? For us, we, ourselves, and life are guilty. Close quote. The question, what truly is the human being, arises here out of spiritual science. It rises out of present-day human nature. I ask you, is it not a serious task for the future 
to consider separating the life of thought which enables us to have life experience, including experience concerning the spirit, from what could never produce intimately subtle life experience, from the democratic life of the state? Do you believe that anything could ever arise in an academic faculty of theology or law or philosophy or medicine or politics or science? I believe these are all faculties that already exist today, which could draw attention, for example, to the fact that in the dangerous period between the 27th and 35th year, an inner desolation can come over a person which in an extreme case can lead to the soul departing but the person continues to appear to be alive only by being possessed by some kind of aramonic entity? The complexity of modern life requires that the intellectual domain be enabled to expand into the spiritual. The most important questions cannot be grasped today on the surface of life. And how is pure state democracy, which is totally justified at the level of the state, supposed to create suitable conditions for what has to come to humanity now, namely the emergence in the future of individuals who will become more and more vital and who bring what they have to say about life entirely as a message from the spiritual world. If it should not be possible for spiritual messages from the spiritual world to be carried to humanity in the future, earth evolution would in no way be able to attain its goal. But the possibility of the emergence of such a free life of thought depends on the freedom of the intellectual domain, depends on the intellectual and cultural life being emancipated from the state and placed on its own independent footing. Otherwise, things happen like what once happened somewhere far from here, at a university where the teaching was always only done by people who didn't have anything special to say, a call went up in the Democratic Assembly to appoint people who were real authorities in their field. But the Democrats banged their sticks on the ground. Quote, we don't want any authorities. We want mediocrity. Mediocrity, close quote. German Mittlerer Lüt. You see, my dear friends, these things all have a serious and profound basis. And it is our task to draw attention to this serious and profound basis and above all to oppose the most terrible evil of modern time, superficiality and thoughtlessness. It is often said that the social question is also a spiritual question, but then the spiritual life has to be viewed in its fundamentals and in its real depths, otherwise the intellectual analysis, particularly of the social question, will remain decidedly superficial will remain stuck on the surface. We will continue these studies next Friday, or if another lecture is held, as requested, somewhere near here, then on Saturday at 7 o'clock. I have been asked to let you know that on Wednesday at 8 o'clock in the Bernoullianum there will be a lecture on, quote, social will and proletarian demands, close quote, organized by a section of the Swiss Students Association in Basel, to which you are all cordially invited by the students. The end of Lecture 8